Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. Taking a look at the issues surrounding the health and well-being of our LGBTIQ communities, this is Well, 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 brought to you every week by Thorn Harbour Health. Here on Well, 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 we delve into the issues impacting and surrounding the health and well-being of our gender, sex and sexually diverse communities. Coming to you from Joy's Victorian Pride Centre Studios on Boonawarren Country, I'm your host, Michael Whelan, joined this week at the Pride Centre Studios by Jacinta Hennecom. Jacinta, how are you doing? I am good, Michael. How are you doing? I'm doing fabulously. Um, now, what are we going to be hearing about tonight? Tonight, we will be speaking to Mon Ince about endometriosis, as it is currently Endo Awareness Month in March. Mon is a non-based queer and genderqueer person living with multiple disabilities, including endo and adenomyosis. They passionately use their lived experience to lead them as an LGBTIQA plus youth and disability advocate, researcher, peer worker and artist. Sexual health, mental health and the overall well-being of our LGBTIQ communities. You're listening to Well, Well, Well. Mon, thank you so much for joining us on Well, Well, Well this week. How are you going? I'm really good. Very happy to be here. Yeah, thank you for for joining us. I wanted to start with asking if you could tell us a bit about yourself and how endometriosis is relevant in your life. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I'm Mon. I use they, them pronouns. Um, And as was mentioned before, I'm queer, genderqueer and disabled. Um, and work in sort of like disability and um, youth mental health sectors. But I also have um, sort of like research interests in queer and crit theory for those who are interested in that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I'm an endo warrior myself. So I have endo um, along with some other conditions like adenomyosis, fibromyalgia, and postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Um, yeah. Mon, I think a really good place to get started is uh, maybe tell us a little bit about what endometriosis is and who it impacts. Yeah, sure. So endo is um, a condition, obviously, that um, is kind of featured by cells which are similar to the lining of the uterus, which is known as the endometrium, um, abnormally grow outside of the uterus. Um, and these lesions or the growth can sort of um, break down in the same way that they would during a menstrual cycle. But because they are growing outside of the uterus, they don't have a natural way of exiting the body. And what that results in is um, like inflammation and scar buildup. Um, and it can actually, in some cases, um, that scar tissue can like adhere organs together and things like that. Um, so it can be really painful, um, but it's worth noting, I think, that um, endo isn't just found in the abdominal cavity, even though that's kind of like the most common place that it's found. Um, it's actually been found on every organ in the human body. 
including like the lungs, the brain and the optical nerve even, which blows my mind every time I think about this. Um, yeah, but yeah, wow. and I guess in terms of like who it affects, it's um, commonly talked about as if it's only a you know, woman's condition. Um, and that's how it's historically sort of been treated. But um, there are people like myself who don't identify as women. Um, and so gender and trans, gender diverse and trans people who also are affected by these conditions. Um, and there's actually, fun fact, been a few cases um, of biologically male uh, people, so AMAB or assigned male at birth people who um, also have had endo lesions found. Wow, that, that was actually going to be my next question. So for those people that are assigned male at birth that experience endometriosis, mm. are they people assigned male at birth that don't have an endometrium? Or, um, yeah, I, I just think that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah, as far as I'm aware, um, it's not they don't have an endometrium because endometriosis is not actually... Um, the endometrium cells, mm. so it's cells that grow that are similar in nature to the endometrium, but it's not the endometrium themselves. So um, people who don't have an endometrium can also still have endometriosis. Um, it's just very much not as common um, in AMAB people as it is in uh, people assigned female at birth. Yeah, wow. That is fascinating mm. to hear how complex it actually is and it kind mm -hmm. of highlights a lot of the I guess the misconceptions about endometriosis um, that really indicates how much more research is needed in in everything to do with it um, mm -hmm. yeah that's um, quite amazing actually um, I wanted to ask what are the symptoms that people may experience if they have endo, if they have these growths throughout their body? What are, What is that like um, for symptoms? Yeah, um, so because uh, growth in the abdominal cavity is the most common place that you'll find endo, a lot of the symptoms are related to that. So things like painful periods for those who do menstruate, um, heavy periods, um, pain with sex or after sex, um, things like uh, gastrointestinal pain or upset, bloating, which I get and all the time, um, and you've probably heard of endo belly, people will describe it as, um, yeah, which can be really painful, but there are symptoms that, occur outside of those areas. So for example, if you have thoracic endometriosis, which is when it grows in the chest cavity, so you can have endometrial growth on your lungs or your diaphragm, say, um, you might have symptoms related to like breathlessness or um, even have lung collapses and need to be taken to hospital for surgery, um, yeah, to resolve that as a result of the endo. Yeah. And what is adenomyosis? Is that related or is it different to endometriosis? Yeah. So they um, are similar conditions, but they are different. Um, and it's common for people to have both conditions, but um, some people will have one or the other. 
Um, but basically, unlike what, so endo grows outside of the uterus, um, the cells that are like the endometrium, in adenomyosis, those cells will grow in and through the muscle wall of the uterus. So instead of just being, so that endometrium sits on the inside of the um, uterus and then every month when someone menstruates, that will shed and exit um, with abnormosis. Yeah, it's actually built into the wall of the uterus itself. Um, and I guess they're related and also different in the way that they are treated. Um, so there's a lot of really similar symptoms that will come along with both and that can actually cause so much confusion in terms of seeking diagnosis and treatment. Um, uh, yeah, and in terms of, I guess, um, a big difference is that endo has no known cure currently. So there's treatments related to, um, you know, uh, laparoscopic surgery where you can excise the lesions um, in hopes to, you know, um, limit the painful symptoms and growth rate of the endo or keep it at bay or, um, yeah, to kind of help bring back your daily function or quality of life. Um, but at the end of the day, there isn't a known cure. But with adeno, because it is growing through the muscle wall, um, technically a hysterectomy is a cure. But obviously, lots of doctors are um, naturally very cautious around undergoing um, hysterectomy with their patients especially if they're young and also childless. Um, yeah, it can be quite difficult to get doctors to <laughs> agree to that kind of intervention. Mm. Yeah, wow. Um, you mentioned earlier about um, uh, some of the misconceptions around endometriosis being that it, you know, it occurs, it can occur in other areas of the body, not just in the kind of the, the intestine area. Um, what are some of the other misconceptions uh, or common, commonly, commonly misunderstood things about endometriosis and endometriosis as, as well, I guess? Yeah. Oh, there's so many, <laughs> honestly. Um, but I think number one big one is um, that it's only a menstrual condition um, or a reproductive condition. And we can see, um, like we've already touched on it, before, but it does grow outside of um, the uterus and it's been found on every organ in the body and it's also being found in people who do not naturally menstruate. So we know that it's a body-wide condition and it needs to be treated as such. Um, and symptoms aren't isolated only to when people have their period. Like, um, you know, for prior to surgery, my symptoms were absolutely all day, every day. Um, yeah, and it's interesting that it's still treated as if it's only um, sort of like a bad period and related to your period. Um, but I guess the other really major misconception is, yeah, that it only affects women because um, it doesn't. And our conversations often are... Um, not inclusive of people like myself who do not identify as women. Um, and it can be difficult, really difficult navigating this space, which is already quite difficult um, 
you know, advocating for yourself um, in the medical industry. And then on top of that, um, being trans or um, gender diverse in some way, it really adds additional complications to it. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And we're going to, to talk a bit more about that um when we come back from after a break. But before we do jump into that break, I did want to ask what are the gaps that exist in diagnosis for endo? Because I think that um, anyone who kind of has an idea about endo from, you know, what we see in the media or in other, um, I guess, health areas, it's known that it does take quite a long time, if at mm. all, for people to get diagnosis. What, what are those gaps that um, commonly happen for people? Mm, yeah, this is such a big and interesting question um, that's hard to answer because I think there's a lot of factors that come into it. But um, I think for starters, it's just not, it's still not that well understood. I mean, certainly things are better now than when I was first diagnosed or it first came onto my radar pre-official um, diagnosis, what, like over 10 probably 15 years ago. Um, yeah, but a lot of doctors aren't, and especially gynecologists, um, are not receiving equal training. Um, and I think this is something that like the general population isn't aware of. Like I think a lot of people think if they um, suspect they have endo, they can go to any gynecologist and they'll receive the same quality of treatment. And that unfortunately is just not the case. Um, not all uh, gynecologists will know how to recognize comorbid symptoms, uh, conditions like adenomyosis. So I received my adenomyosis diagnosis after um, two previous laparoscopies um, investigating my endometriosis before I actually received the diagnosis, um, which, yeah, was kind of wild. Um, but also in terms of treatment um, and surgery, uh, when you get a laparoscopy, there's kind of two options that you can get. You can either get excision or ablation. And um, ablation is where they burn off the um, endo lesions. Um, but it's kind of like when you mow your lawn um, and cut the grass off flat, but then all of the roots are still left there just to grow back over time um, and excision is when you really dig into that soil and um, pull out those roots as well but not all gynecologists receive that um, excision specialist training and a lot of people don't know that they should be looking for that when they are um, trying to investigate and access an endodiagnosis so yeah there's a lot of things that come into um, why it takes people so long. And I think the gendered kind of nature of the disease and history of women um, being told that they shouldn't talk about menstruation um, also comes into it and negatively affects everyone, not just the women who have these conditions. Mon, what is it like for queer people who have endo obviously there's a lot of assumptions around gender um, and assumptions about fertility and relationships or sexual function and we were just talking a bit about the misunderstanding around pain 
um, as well. What has it been like? I mean, if you want to talk about it from your perspective or, or from the perspective of other trans and queer people who um, you do research with or who you work with? Yeah, um, I'm absolutely happy to talk a little bit about my personal experiences and also what I've seen or heard in conversation with the people that I do. Um, I tend to think of myself as a very like authentic and open person. I kind of put my identity at the forefront of um, my interactions with the world in general. Um, and I'm really proud to do that. I think it's um, nice to model that for other um, queer and trans and disabled people who maybe are unsure about that. Um, but there is still um, hesitation for me. I haven't um, come out to my gynecologist as trans or that I identify not as a woman, even though I have told them that I am queer. Um, and I think that that really speaks to the fact that there's really no guarantee of safety um, for trans and gender diverse people who are accessing uh, treatment in navigating the medical system. Um, unfortunately, it really can have um, in the past and also for many people that I know resulted in worse care um, not being taken seriously. Uh, and, you know, you're already a person who's having to advocate um, for your uh, health in general and then having to justify who you are, who you love, um, or the way that you perceive your future family or um, choice not to have um, children or whatever that may be, it, yeah, is really complicated. Um, and I guess when you're navigating as well um sort of like hospital stays and things like that um you're in a really vulnerable position as a patient and so if you choose not to come out um in order to prioritize i guess the quality of your treatment you then still have to put up with the feeling of being misgendered consistently um throughout that time there and that that takes an emotional toll um, on top of your physical pain. So it, yeah, is really complicated navigating that space as a queer person. Yeah. And kind of pivoting on that conversation around, you know, misgendering and the, the experiences of queer people accessing medical care, the, the common recited statistic about endo is, you know, one in 10 women. Is there work being done to kind of reorient that language to make it more uh, to make it more apparent that not just people who identify as women experience these conditions, and to make I guess individuals more aware that this is something that they should consider in in navigating their own sexual and reproductive health? Mm, I think for sure, like the dialogue in the past probably five years has really shifted towards being more inclusive. Like I am seeing it more, um, particularly in sort of um, peer-led spaces. So um, we're seeing a lot more solidarity from cis women um, and advocates who are choosing to use inclusive language. 
Um, also, you see this through uh, broader trends um, related to kind of um, menstrual reproductive health um, through brands like Modi Body um, releasing like period wear that is for all people who menstruate, um, not just women. But they're definitely in terms of navigating the actual um, medical health industry. I don't, I don't see that change filtering through as quickly. Um, yeah, and it is definitely should be a priority because you know it really does affect more than than just women. And how accurate is that statistic anyway? If um, mm. we're not including all people who. Um, are actually affected by the condition. Yeah, that's true. Are there ways for people to connect if they have or suspect that they have endometriosis? And and you did just mentioned the, um, I guess, the importance of peer-led spaces. Is that something that people can access easily or if someone isn't sure where they can connect with community, do you mm. have any suggestions about um, kind of how that all works and, and what is actually out there? Yeah. Um, so honestly, like peer-led spaces changed the game for me. That's really where um, I guess I gained my confidence and um felt really affirmed and validated in my identity as a chronically ill and later reaching that place where I felt comfortable using the word disability, um, which obviously is a personal decision and not everyone um, will be comfortable with that. But um, yeah, I think the place that really started it all for me was Instagram. Um, the chronic illness community uh, on there is so generous and open um, with their education and sharing their experiences. And it just really did wonders for me. Um, but also places like Facebook groups, um, TikTok, YouTube channels, like podcasts, um, books and biographies written by, um, you know, endo warriors themselves. Um, and I think if anybody's starting out and they just really don't know what to where to go first head on to instagram and just use the hashtag endo warrior or simply endometriosis adenomyosis and scroll through a bit and you'll find some really amazing accounts that have so much so much knowledge um and the kind of vibe and tone of the conversation is just so positive it um yeah it really is a breath of fresh air Mm. And what makes those online communities kind of an important space for people to connect um, with other people living with disabilities and, and chronic illnesses? Is it just that the the proliferation of, I guess, user-driven content is so accessible now? Oh, definitely the accessibility uh, factor is huge. I mean, the fact that, you know, we're talking about a group of people um, who to varying degrees um, and it fluctuates for each of us uh, how mobile we might be, how much energy we have to go and meet people in physical spaces. So the fact that we, at the touch of a button um, and, you know, from the comfort of our bed or our couch can have 
conversations with people who understand our experiences um, that aren't restrained, uh, you know, limited by um, location. Like we can have conversations with people in the UK, in Canada, all over the world. Um, is just incredible um, and particularly important for niche communities like the queer and um, trans communities experiencing these conditions because, um, yeah, it can just be so hard to find those people and the fact that you can just type in some simple hashtags or, um, you know, stumble across these, these communities so easily um, really is just life-changing. Yeah, absolutely. It does definitely seem like it is literally life-changing, which is such a powerful thing for people to be able to tap into and and connect with. Um, Mm. Finally, I wanted to ask, uh, and this is a pretty big question, but Mon, do you have any advice that you would give people about self-advocating with health professionals such as doctors or or specialists such as gynecologists? Um, Is there anything that you have learnt during your journey with self-advocacy? Yeah, um, this is a huge question. It is, yeah. (laughs) I think think the main things that I've learnt really did pivot and come from modelling that I saw online. So big factor, do do research, learn the conditions, um, learn, you know, the treatment options um, and also how other people have advocated and decided if those, um, you know, strategies are what's going to work for you or not, what you are or are uncomfortable with. Um, don't be afraid to ask for help, you know. There is absolutely no shame um, despite what, you know, social stigma exists and, I guess, stereotypes there are around, um, you know, what a productive or successful person looks like. You absolutely can ask for help in order to get, um, you know, to be able to thrive. Like, that's what we're all looking for. And um, I think especially when it comes to endo specifically, do the research before you reach out to the professional. Make sure you're getting into a room with somebody, if you have the means to, that um, is an excision specialist that, you know, really understands the the disease more than uh, your kind of general level um, training. It will change the game. Um, And also just trust your gut if it doesn't feel right it's not right (laughs) very good advice thank you so much mon for speaking with us today it has been an absolute pleasure and we wish you all the best with your onward journey amazing thank you so much Time to wrap up another episode of Well, Well, Well. Links to information that we chatted about on tonight's show will be on the podcast page, which is joy.org.au forward slash well, well, well. And you can also listen to all of our previous episodes there. And as always, if there's a topic that you would like us to cover, you can email us at wellwellwell at joy.org.au. Get in touch. Let us know what ideas you have or suggestions for topics to do with the health and well-being of our communities. And we will get in touch with you. 
We will see you guys next week. Jacinta, it's been a pleasure to join you here at the Victorian Pride Centre Studios on Boonwurrung Country. As it has been with you, Michael. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Well, 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 your show for LGBTIQ health and well-being, presented by Joy Sponsor, Thorn Harbour Health. For more on these topics and much more, check out Thorn Harbour on social media at Thorn Harbour or via the website, thornharbour.org. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy. Joy.